Thank you, Dr. Spriggs. And I would like to thank uh, Dr. Spriggs, Dr. Chabner, the organizing committee for inviting me to um, talk about liquid biopsies and genotype-directed therapies in metastatic breast cancer. Since I submitted my title and abstract, I made two changes. The first is in the title. Um, this talk is sponsored by the Society of Translational Oncology, so we'll be talking more about translational application. And the second is the theme of the conference is big questions, answering big questions in cancer research. So in my talk, I would also talk about big questions. I'm not sure that I would necessarily answer the big questions, uh, but the idea is to uh, talk about big, big questions. The talk would start the conversation and hopefully we can continue the conversation even out, uh, after the talk. So throughout my talk, I would be talking about uh, three major themes. The first is the role of genotyping, including ESR1 mutations in mediating endocrine resistance and potential therapeutic strategies. I'll review clinical development of genotype-directed therapies, and then would we'll talk about potential expansion in early breast cancer. So let's start with the first question. So the first question is, what's the role of tumor genotyping in metastatic breast cancer? And this might be a bit obvious, but this was actually a big debate at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. So last year, there was a specific session just dedicated to the role of next-gen sequencing in metastatic breast cancer. So I'm a medical oncologist and would like to start with the case. Um, a 65-year-old female who had ER-positive breast cancer, uh, received adjuvant tamoxifen, uh, 15 years later then had disease recurrence in the bone, had a biopsy, the tumor was hormone-receptive positive, HER2-negative. As per standard recommendations, the patient started letrozole with the CDK4-6 inhibitor. And after about a year, the patient had disease progression. So a common question in the clinic is, what should be the second-line therapy for the management of metastatic ER-positive breast cancer. And if you go to guidelines, such as NCCN guidelines, this is what you get. A list of number of therapies that one could potentially choose from. And it's not just restricted to endocrine agents, but also chemotherapy agents that one could choose from. So if you look at the management of ER-positive metastatic breast cancer, you have a number of options um, related to endocrine therapy with without CDK4-6 inhibitors or mTOR inhibitors. You have a number of options with chemotherapy, and then there are clinical trials with novel endocrine agents, PI3 kinase, AKT inhibitors. But all of this is essentially blind to what's really happening in the tumor and delays the access of potentially effective therapies for that individual. So there's a lot of therapeutic chaos um, that's happening in the field right now. And that's where potentially tumor genotyping could provide some clarity. So the idea is that you have a patient with metastatic breast cancer, you profile the tumor, and then based on genotyping, select precision therapy. So the idea is to decode the genome and translate it for precision therapeutics, the right therapy for the right tumor. So for this patient as well, um, she was seen in our uh, metastatic breast cancer clinic. We sent uh, her tumor for tumor genotyping and identified a mutation. The specific mutation that was identified was an ESR1 mutation. So ESR1 mutations essentially refers to 
um, tumors where the ER pathway is still active and the disease progression is because of estrogen-independent but estrogen receptor-mediated signaling. So essentially, it's estrogen-independent but ER-mediated signaling. However, one big challenge in metastatic breast cancer is that tissue is a big issue. Uh, a number of patients have bone-only metastases, and it's very difficult to obtain tissue for genotyping. That's where uh, circulating tumor cells, circulating tumor DNA as a liquid biopsy could be very valuable. In the past, this has been technically very challenging because these are uh, rare cells, typically less than 10 cells per ml as compared to 1 million white blood cells per ml. But the advantage is you can have repeated non-invasive specimens, you can profile the tumor, you can monitor tumor biology. So um, Daniel Haber and Mehmet Toner have been involved with the development of the iChip, uh, which essentially allows for um, isolation of cells that are relatively untouched and um, you could do sophisticated molecular sequencing. So I would not go into detail about iChip. Dr. Haber would be reviewing that um, in the next talk. But I wanted to highlight is that is, this is a potential technology for sequencing. Now we did a study where we looked at patients who had both tissue genotyping as well as uh, genotyping by liquid biopsies. And we identified that significantly more patients had actionable mutations detected by ctDNA as opposed to tissue genotyping. So the number of patients uh, who received match therapies was much higher with liquid biopsies as compared to tissue, bi tissue biopsy in metastatic breast cancer. So coming back to our patient, the patient had disease recurrence on a CDK4-6 inhibitor. We sent her blood for genotyping and identified an ESR1 mutation. So ESR1 mutations essentially result in estrogen-independent ER-mediated signaling. The, these are mutations in the ligand-binding domain of the estrogen receptor. So the estrogen receptor switch is constantly on. Even in the absence of estrogen, the switch is on. There are two important things to note about ESR1 mutations. The first is that they result in estrogen-independent signaling. The second is that these mutations also confer resistance to standard endocrine therapy agents be it tamoxifen or be it fulvestrant, at standard doses used in the clinic, um, ESR1 mutant tumors are resistant. So in 2013, there were a number of publications that reported uh, the presence of ESR1 mutations based on analysis of metastatic biopsy. And this is important because these are acquired mutations. So analysis of the primary tumor usually does not identify these mutations. It's genotyping of the metastatic specimen that results in the identification of these uh, mutations. So the selection of tissue is important as far as genotyping is concerned. And we also saw this in circulating tumor cells in six patients with metastatic breast cancer, three of them um, had ESR1 mutations in the circulating tumor cells, and these mutations were not present uh, when we genotyped the primary tumor. 
And we actually mentioned this uh, in the manuscript that while ESR1 mutations were first described in 1997, uh, there were um, other groups that reported presence of ESR1 mutations by genotyping of the metastatic specimen, and we also saw this in circulating tumor cells. And since then, a number of groups have reported the presence of ESR1 mutations based on plasma genotyping. So as I mentioned before, um, in general, if you have wild-type estrogen receptor, estrogen binds to the estrogen receptor, which then results in activation of the um, estrogen response element and then ERE-mediated gene transcription. But when there is no estrogen um, and you have an ESR1 mutation, the tumor can still signal. So you can have the best AI in the world. That's not going to work because the tumor is estrogen-independent. And these tumors are also um, not inhibited by fulvestrant at standard doses um, based on preclinical models. Um, on the left-hand side is the preclinical model based on uh, patient-derived circulating tumor cell um, where you can see that these cells are resistant to fulvestrant as well as raloxifene and tamoxifen. And then uh, other uh, groups have also shown that at standard doses of fulvestrant, ESR1 mutant tumors are resistant to fulvestrant. And part of the issue relates to the pharmacodynamic properties of fulvestrant. Um, there was a study which, which looked at the utility of FESPET, or um, inactive estrogen, um, given before the start of fulvestrant and then during fulvestrant. As you can see on the left-hand side, at, at the time of baseline FESPET, there were a number of spots that lit up which essentially show the presence of estrogen receptor. The patient then received fulvestrant. Some of those spots are gone, but there are still spots, like the one in the hip, that still light up despite the use of fulvestrant, which highlights that at the doses used in clinic, fulvestrant does not completely occupy the estrogen receptor. So the next logical question is, can we do better? And that is where oral surds come in. These are agents which bind to the estrogen receptor and essentially degrade the estrogen receptor. There are a number of oral surds in clinical development, um, GDC 9545, LSG102, but the one that is furthest in clinical development is an agent called RAD1901 or elasestrant. So elasestrant in preclinical models demonstrated higher activity than fulvestrant, than tamoxifen. And as you can see in this uh, patient-derived xenograft, both in ESR1 wild type as well as ESR1 mutated um, cell line, uh, the activity of uh, elasestrant was higher than fulvestrant. And this is a waterfall plot looking at multiple models. And again, consistently with the use of elasestrant, you see tumor inhibition. Uh, but not with fulvestrant or tamoxifen. So we were involved in a phase one clinical trial looking at elasestrant, started at a dose of uh, 200 milligrams, and then uh, did dose escalation. This was in heavily pretreated patients with metastatic breast cancer. And in terms of the general landscape, the response rate with fulvestrant in this setting is 2%, and the CBR, or clinical benefit rate, is 15%. 
and a median progression-free survival of about two months based on uh, historical data. So in this heavily pretreated patient population, we saw a response rate of 23%, a CBR of 41.7%. And out of the five patients who had a partial response, four of them had ESR1 mutant tumors. And these were patients who had received prior fulvestrant. Some of them had received prior CDK4-6 therapy as well. This is a swimmer's plot that uh, demonstrates the duration of response. And as you can see, a number of patients who had partial response also had um, durable responses with elastestrant. These patients had received a median of three prior therapies. 50% of them had ESR1 mutation. And in terms of PD activity, uh, on the left-hand side is uh, a FESPET scan that was done before the start of fulvestrant. You can see multiple spots that light up, which essentially show the presence of estrogen receptor. And then with the use of elastestrant, essentially there was uh, almost complete inhibition of the estrogen receptor, 91% reduction in the FESPET uptake with the use of elastestrant. And then we also looked at the ESR1 mutant allelic fraction in patients who had ESR1 mutations. So before the start of therapy, based on um, plasma genotyping, identified the presence of D53G um, ESR1 mutation in a patient. The patient started elastocent therapy. As, and as you can see, at 60 days, there was essentially no ESR1 mutation seen with the use of elastocent and the patient had uh, a prolonged molecular response along with a partial clinical response. So this has led to a phase three clinical trial that will open this year called the Emerald trial. It's a phase three global registration trial of elastostrant was a standard endocrine therapy for patients with metastatic ER positive breast cancer. And it would be stratified based on ESR1 mutation status, a co-primary endpoint of this study is the activity of elastostrant versus endocrine therapy in ESR1 mutant metastatic breast cancer. So this is one example where um, tumor genotyping can help identify a target and um, therapy selection. There are other examples as well. PIK3CA mutation, the use of PI3 kinase inhibitor, um, AKT1 mutation, the use of AKT inhibitors, and then also looking at tumor suppressor gene where essentially you don't target the gene, but you target the pathway, PARP inhibitors for uh, BSR, uh, BRCA mutant uh, cancers or the use of AKT mTOR inhibitors uh, for tumors that lose P10. And ultimately these would require um, clinical trials that demonstrate the clinical utility of the specific uh, molecular characterization, but the model remains the same. You identify a specific mutation and the patients would be randomized to match target therapy versus standard therapy, and if that's positive, it would result in approval of the drug. So we reviewed um, ESR1 mutations. We reviewed how ESR1 mutations could, um, could be utilized for the selection of targeted therapy. For this specific patient, the patient had an ESR1 mutation. The patient did receive a SERD. Um, and, and there are two things that I wanted to highlight in this graph. The first is that um, in a research setting, we collected blood 
while the patient was receiving letrozole with palbocyclib. And as you can see, around nine to 10 months of letrozole therapy, you can see a rise of ESR1 mutation. So this is a clear example where you can see rise of an acquired mutation uh, with the use of um, a specific therapy that results in resistance. So with the continued use of letrozole, the patient had a rise in ESR1 mutation. The patient then received a third therapy which would block um, that mutation and you can see a decline in the ESR1 mutation uh, mutant allelic fraction. However, over time, the ESR1 mutation, the D53G, uh, continued to rise while another one, uh, Y537, continued to decrease. And it talks about the differential activity of the specific type of ESR1 mutations. They are not all the same, and different surges do not inhibit all the ESR1 mutations in the same way. And that's why looking at the type of ESR1 mutation and also the specific type of surge is important. This was not LSS trend. This was an older generation surge that did not have potent um, ER blocking activity. It was more of a CIRM. In addition, we identified when the patient had disease progression that there was a new mutation, a mutation in HER2 that was not present before. So if you look at our graph again, I talked about how um, tumors that become resistant to endocrine therapy can still be dependent on the ER pathway. You can have estrogen independent, but ER mediated signaling. The other possibility is that you can have increased uh, upstream signaling through growth factor receptors, such as HER2. And it talks about uh, clonal heterogeneity, where you have two different cells, one cell that's predominantly been driven by ESR1 and the other cell uh, that's driven by HER2 mutation. Which brings me to my next question, which is what are the major therapeutic challenges and barriers in the era of precision medicine? And a big issue is uh, tumor heterogeneity and also the selection of targeted therapy. I would emphasize and highlight that just the presence of a target does not mean that you should use a targeted therapy. And a good example of this uh, is the story of HER2-positive CTCs. In the late 2000s, uh, multiple groups had described the presence of circulating tumor cells in the blood that were HER2-positive. We also saw this in patients with metastatic breast cancer. And this is elegant work done in uh, Dr. Haber's lab by Nicola Jordan, where she found that um, about 42% of circulating tumor cells in a patient with a metastatic breast cancer were HER2-positive. She then generated uh, patient-derived CTC cultures and looked at the impact of anti-HER2 therapy. And this was a time where there was actually an ongoing trial looking at Herceptin with vinorelbin specifically for patients who had HER2-positive CTCs in the blood. She found that HER2-positive CTCs were not responsive to anti-HER2 therapy that's used in the clinic, lapatinib or Herceptin. And that's because these HER2-positive CTCs are very different from the traditional HER2-positive breast cancer. Traditional HER2-positive breast cancer is driven by HER2 gene amplification. But these HER2-positive CTCs represent more of a functional state. These tumors do not have HER2 gene amplification. So she didn't see any impact of standard anti-HER2 therapy, including lapatinib. And then a year later, 
the clinical trial results were published, and essentially it was a negative trial. There was no efficacy of Herceptin or Minorelbin in HER2-positive CTCs, and we could have predicted that from the uh, preclinical studies. But it just highlights the example where um, there was HER2-positive CTCs seen in the blood. Everyone thought these would respond to anti-HER2 therapies, and a clinical trial was launched. The other point I would like to highlight is that I mentioned earlier that if you do plasma-based genotyping, you can identify more alterations. That's also a problem because that also leads to more chaos. This is an example of a report of a patient that I received last week. As you can see, there are 11 alterations that were identified in plasma-based genotyping. RB1, BRCA, HER2, FGFR, KRAS, BRAF. And we have therapies for pretty much all of these. So in the clinic, should we target BRAF, KRAS, HER2, BRCA, RB1? And, and this has led to considerable amount of chaos um, in the field of uh, precision medicine. So if you do um, plasma-based genotyping, yes, you can identify more mutations. Um, and essentially, these mutations probably represent the summation of the various alterations that are present in various metastatic sites. However, that's where uh, it's important to conduct functional and validation studies because just the presence of mutations necessarily does not predict drug susceptibility. There could be different mutant allelic fractions. Some of these could be subclones. And that's why you need functional and validation studies before you can choose a specific targeted therapy. So let me give an example of the patient that we've been talking about. So this patient um, had ESR1 mutation over time, also developed a HER2 mutation. Patient also had NF1 loss, which would result in activation of the MAP kinase pathway, EGFR mutation, as well as P16 loss. So how should we target this tumor? We actually did a study where we looked at all patients who were seen in our clinic and had HER2 mutations and identified 12 patients who had HER2 mutations and these mutations coexisted with a number of other mutations including driver mutations such as PIK3CA. One of these patients um, actually uh, had a patient-derived circulating tumor cell culture established. So from the blood of this uh, patient with metastatic HER2 mutant breast cancer, we were able to isolate the CTCs. And uh, in Daniel Haber's lab, a postdoc, Teronish, established cultures um, and did um, drug sensitivity experiments, where she found that these cell lines, the HER2 mutant cell lines, were resistant to fulvestrant, which is to be expected, but were very sensitive to neratinib, which is a potent uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor of HER2. And then in additional functional experiments, she nicely demonstrated that the, with the use of neratinib, you lose phosphor S6 as well as phosphoric. So essentially, neratinib shuts down the HER2 pathway. So this provided functional validation that the use of neratinib in HER2 mutant cell lines would have activity. Then in terms of clinical validation, um, the patient had HER2 mutant breast cancer, received treatment with Fastodex plus neratinib. And the reason to use Fastodex was because the patient also had ESR1 mutation. 
And as you can see, after four cycles of therapy, the patient had a partial response with 37% reduction. We also monitored the various mutations. Um, you could see a decline in the HER2 mutant allelic fraction, and you could see a partial decline in ESR1 mutant allelic fraction, but the other mutations, NF1, EGFR, were essentially unchanged. So this highlights um, clonal heterogeneity and the contribution of various mutations um, in driving the tumor. The, her, the, the clone that had HER2 mutation essentially disappeared with the use of neratinib. The clone that had ESR1 um, E38Q mutation essentially disappeared with fulvestrant, but there was only a partial decline in the other ESR1 mutant clone, which is to be expected with fulvestrant because it does not block ESR1 mutant cancers completely. And the clone that had EGFR mutation essentially was unchanged. So I just talked about two mutations, ESR1 and HER2, but as you can imagine in a complex tumor, there are multiple mutations signaling through ER, signaling through HER2, um, activating mutations in MAP kinase as well as PI3 kinase, all of which result in tumor growth. So this clonal heterogeneity is a major problem in the era of precision medicine. So what are the potential solutions? Well, one could consider targeted therapy combinations. If you can truly identify driver mutations, you could combine therapies that, that impact uh, those mutations and pathways. The challenges are, how do you identify in a specific tumor which is the mutation that is dominant? How do you identify clonal dominance? In the clinic, it's not easy to combine therapies. Uh, there was a lot of excitement about PI3 kinase and MAP kinase combination, but these combinations were just too toxic um, in the clinic. There are drug-drug interactions. We've been involved with combination of mTOR with CDK4-6 inhibitors, but the use of a CDK4-6 inhibitor results in higher levels of everolimus. So there are drug-drug interactions that one needs to consider. And then there's also a ceiling effect in terms of the number of potential combinations one could consider. The other possibility is to use um, antibody drug conjugates, where you use an antigen that is universally present in tumor lineage, but is not present in normal cells. So then you are essentially using that antigen to deliver higher doses of chemotherapy or toxic payload to the cancer cells while sparing the normal cells so you can optimize the efficacy to toxicity ratio. Immunotherapy would be another example where um, irrespective of the um, mutation profile of the tumor, and if anything, um, it's good for tumors that have uh, more of a complex or a mutation profile or a higher mutation burden. And the third possibility is to uh, tailor therapy based on patient-derived ex vivo cultures. The challenges are the feasibility of this approach, the success rate, and also this is going to get more complicated as the tumor evolves uh, over time. But we did see this um, approach work out for a patient who had uh, metastatic breast cancer um, at the time of disease progression, the blood was sent for CTC culture, and about two months before the patient had disease progression, you could actually generate 
um, CTC cell lines uh, and do drug sensitivity experiments. So there is a clinical window for drug susceptibility testing, which if optimized, um, could be used for individual patient, but it's not ready for prime time yet. But there are ongoing studies looking at this approach where patients who start a new therapy would have the blood drawn, will monitor um, the, the blood for um, acquisition of mutations and establish uh, CTC cultures. So this is ongoing in the setting of a clinical trial. So the final thing I wanted to move towards is uh, we've seen that the low-hanging fruit has been the, the, the selection of a single targeted therapy based on a single mutation uh, that's actionable, be it PIK3CA, be it ESR1, or be it HER2. The challenge is over time, there's increase in tumor complexity, there is clonal heterogeneity, and that's a big question for the field of precision medicine, how to tackle clonal heterogeneity. The other approach is to move precision medicine in early breast cancer. So how can we expand precision medicine from metastatic to early breast cancer? This is really important for two reasons. Um, the first is majority of early breast cancer, majority of breast cancers occur in the early setting. So if you look at the patient population, more than 80% of patients with um, breast cancer have localized breast cancer. So it's an important problem. And the second is, conceptually, this is very appealing, but from a technology perspective, it has remained elusive. So if we talk about early breast cancer, I think there are two models that one could consider. The first is the model of a neoadjuvant trial for precision medicine, because it's an excellent model for development of biomarkers. You can sequence the tumor or look at biomarkers at the time, of, um, at the time that patient has core biopsy, and then based on the biomarker, you could choose as a specific targeted therapy. I won't go into this in detail. Dr. Laura Spring would be reviewing the use of neoadjuvant therapies as a drug development model later today. But the other thing I would highlight is that besides the um, selection of therapy, you can also monitor um, biomarkers in the blood based on blood-based genotyping. The second option is the use in adjuvant setting. So if we come back to our index patient, she had her original cancer diagnosed in 2000 and had disease recurrence 15 years later. So the question is, why did this patient have disease recurrence 15 years later? Should we have recommended 15 years of endocrine therapy? How about 20 years? How about 25 years? So how can we decide on the timing of endocrine therapy and the duration of endocrine therapy. And that's where potentially blood-based biomarkers or genotyping can be helpful. Because if you think about this, conceptually there are two types of cells, proliferating cells which result in disease recurrence in the first few years after diagnosis, and then dormant cells which essentially re result in late recurrence. So if we do blood-based monitoring, we can identify when these dormant cells start to wake up again or proliferate again and then use therapy uh, at that time rather than just blind use of uh, therapies. And this is a clinical trial that we are doing at MGH. It's called the LEADER trial, and it's for patients who have hormone receptor positive breast cancer 
who are on endocrine therapy, and they could be on endocrine therapy for a year, for two years, for five years, there is no limit on the duration of endocrine therapy. And the idea is that we would collect blood before they start a CDK4-6 inhibitor, and then look at the change in ctDNA and other blood-based biomarkers with the addition of a second therapy. And the goal of this trial is to identify the, A, the prevalence of ctDNA positive um, breast cancer, and B, the optimal cutoff that should be used before we do a genotype-directed clinical trial in early breast cancer. So the idea would be once we identify uh, the ctDNA cutoff, uh, we would have a trial specifically for patients who have no radiological evidence of disease but have MRD or minimal residual disease based on um, blood-based monitoring, and then they would be randomized to endocrine therapy plus CDK4-6 versus endocrine therapy alone. The primary endpoint would be ctDNA clearance uh, as well as recurrence-free survival. So to summarize, ongoing precision medicine efforts have largely focused on tumor genotyping for selection of single match therapy, usually in a clinical trial, but the field is rapidly expanding in other subsets. The monitoring of tumor mutations by blood-based genotyping can provide early evidence of pharmacodynamic effect and can also help identify mechanisms of resistance as well as uh, identification of novel targets. The selection of specimen, is it primary versus metastatic versus blood? The specific mutation, the type of mutation, the analytical method, coexisting mutations, these are all important considerations that could influence the response to targeted therapy. Tumor evolution and clonal heterogeneity are major issues for durable response to match targeted therapy. Just the presence of a target does not necessarily mean it would respond to match targeted therapy. Therapeutic synergy with combination therapy, antibody drug conjugate, patient-derived models are potential strategies that are being investigated in clinical trials. While ongoing precision medicine efforts have largely focused on advanced disease, future applications would include early detection and rational therapeutic selection based on tumor biology. So I would summarize this by saying that traditionally the precision medicine vision has been right targeted therapy for right tumor. However, one needs to consider tumor evolution, coexisting alterations, compensatory pathways, specific assays. And what we're really moving towards is right regimen for the right patient based on the right test at the right time. And that's the vision of our uh, breast molecular and precision medicine clinic as well, where patients with breast cancer uh, have the tumor profiled. We, we then choose precision therapy based on that monitor it based on blood-based uh, genotyping assays. All of this goes into a database, and then this then helps the next patient who is coming in the clinic. So the whole idea is to increase the success of precision therapies as well as real-time monitoring, and then um, enhance um, the collaborations with um, external experts as well as preclinical collaborations across MGH. 
So the idea is to increase access of precision therapies for patients with breast cancer. This is starting in metastatic breast cancer, but we hope to expand this in early breast cancer as well, and then to monitor their outcomes and uh, enhance the collaboration with other translational investigators. So I would like to thank my uh, mentors, um, Dr. Haber, who's in the audience, Dr. Chabner, uh, as well as my mentees. Uh, my mentors have helped me shape my vision, but it's the mentees who have helped me implement the vision. Uh, my collaborators and colleagues, research staff, um, funding agencies, and my gratitude to my patients. Thank you. <laughs>